Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Peringer. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll read some passages here, some verses, 13 through 22, here in just a minute. And since this is Memorial Day weekend, it makes us think of the members of our armed services who gave the ultimate sacrifice so that we could enjoy freedoms, freedoms that we too often take for granted. These brave men and women willingly went into hostile territory to fight the good fight for the nation, for the people, for our good. And with courage and strength and steadfastness, they met open hostility and they fulfilled their duty. Now I look at what this weekend stands for, and I see a picture or a metaphor for us Christians. And maybe I see a picture or metaphor for what us Christians are going to be facing in the years to come, especially considering what the world, and specifically our culture, is going to recognize and celebrate this next month. They like to call it Pride Month. The Bible says pride goes before the fall. Sin is not something to be proud of. But the tides of the culture are turning. Turning away from God. Turning headlong towards sin. And it's not just that they openly celebrate sin, which they most definitely do. But they have also become openly and very publicly hostile toward those who oppose their beliefs and their agenda. Make no mistake about it, they want to silence us. One way or another, they do not want us to oppose them. And yes, it might come to the point of making the ultimate sacrifice of standing up for God's truth standing up for righteousness. Our culture and our nation has become very hostile toward our Savior and the gospel message. We are now in hostile territory as the world itself seems to hold on very strongly to sin to immorality, to debauchery. It's going to be openly hostile toward God, toward Christ, toward His Word, toward us, toward the faith. As the tides are changing, things becoming more openly hostile, how do we live in the midst of this? How do we how do we carry on in this growing hostility that we face? I mean, we are able to, we are more than able to stand strong and, and to stand tall because we have Christ. We have eternal life and we have the truth. But you know what? We, we know that one day we'll be with God in heaven, but we're here, we're pilgrims sojourning on this earth. How, 
How do we live in the midst of this? Because the environment is not going to be easy. How do we live? It's definitely not for the faint of heart, and it's most definitely not for the weak of faith. How do we live? Well, what we want to learn from our passage today is that we can live without fear in a world that grows more hostile toward our faith because of what we possess and because of whose possession we are. I mean, if you forget everything else that's said in this sermon today, remember that. We do not need to fear because of who we are in Christ and therefore whose possession we are. So let's not fear. Yeah, host hostility is going to grow. Let's not live in fear. Let's live in faith, the faith of the faithful one. Let's live by faith, believing and trusting in the one who is faithful, the one on whose promises we can stand. I mean, there, again, there, there's a reason the Holy Spirit moved in, in choosing songs about trust and faith and standing on God's promises. And we need that. We need that for what's coming. And I want us to be prepared. I want us to be ready. And so I want to read verses 13 through 22 of 1 Peter chapter 3, if you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as I read this passage. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes this, For who is going to harm you if you are devoted to what is good, but in fact, if you happen to suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed, but do not be terrified of them or be shaken, but set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. For it is better to suffer for doing good if God wills, then for doing evil. Because Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God by being put to death in the flesh, but by being made alive in the Spirit. In it, he went and preached to the spirits in prison after they were disobedient long ago when God patiently waited in the days of Noah as an ark was being constructed in the ark, a few, that is eight souls, were delivered through water. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but the pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers subject to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray we take this to heart. I pray we are encouraged by your word and it gives us strength to stand on your promises, to stand on your word, even in the midst of all the hostility that this world is going to be throwing at us. May we be ready, may we trust in you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, you may be seated. Now verses 13 and 14, they give us the subject matter of this passage, they give us the theme of this particular passage. And, you know, it's flowing from what came before. In the passage that came before this one, Paul, Peter told us that, you know, to truly live the good life, to obtain the good life, we actually give our life away. 
and do good for others. That is the good life. The good life is not living in selfishness, not living for self, not thinking that it's all about earthly goods and earthly riches and, and, and things like that. No, the good life actually is giving your life away and being a blessing to other people. And now he says in verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are devoted to doing good? Now, you know, he's not saying that, well, as long as you do good, you're going to somehow be specially protected or something like that. Because Peter is looking at the end. He's looking in the long run, so to speak. He's looking toward the end judgment. He's saying that, I mean, ultimately, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you follow Christ, if you do good in the name of Christ, you will ultimately not be destroyed. And even if you're killed on this earth, if you're in Christ, you come out a winner. Because you're with him for all of eternity. And so Peter's thinking long-term. And so knowing that nothing and nobody, whether visible or invisible, no one can do us ultimate harm. No one can take our souls out of the hands of Christ. He says in verse 14 that we are to continue to take our stand in doing right on this earth. Do good on this earth in the name of Christ, even if we suffer. Because even if we suffer, he says, you're going to be eternally blessed. And then he quotes from Isaiah 8.12. He exhorts us, do not be terrified of them or shaken. Don't be terrified or be shaken. Because God was telling this to Isaiah, not to fear the advancing Assyrian armies. Don't fear the enemy. And so he's telling us, neither should we let the enemies, all of them, don't let these enemies of the cross, these enemies of Christ, cause us to fear so that we back down or we stand down or we lose faith. We need not fear the hostility of sinners, even in a hostile environment, because we cannot be ultimately destroyed. But for most of us, that sounds easier said than done. I mean, one, we as Americans, up till this point, we are not used to being in such a hostile environment. We are not used to being on the receiving end of such, such hostility. But the heat's ratcheting up, the heat's growing. And when that hostility starts coming our way, our first response, the natural human response, might be to fear. And Peter tells us, no. You don't need to fear and you don't need to back down. Okay, how? How can we prepare ourselves that way? I mean, that leads us to this question. How can we live without fear in the face of this increasing hostility? How, how can I set myself? What can I do to prepare myself so that I don't fear? as this hostility increases well, he uses the rest of this passage to kind of lead us there, to answer that question. And so we want to quickly look at four lessons on how we can live without fear in the face of increasing hostility. The first lesson that Peter tells us is that we are to concede that Christ is our Lord. Concede that Christ is your Lord. Now to concede means to surrender, means to yield to a truth. And there's a certain truth that you need to yield yourself to if you're going to live without fear. 
He tells us in the beginning part of verse 15. He says, we are to set apart as Lord, Christ, set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. And now some, some translations will say, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Peter is saying, not only do you know the truth and believe the truth that Jesus is Lord, you actually decide to live like Jesus is Lord. You don't just kind of put it in your head. I mean, you know, it's something that we say. It's Christianese. We talk about Jesus as Lord. It's not, not just a phrase to say. It's actually a life to be lived. Christ is Lord. Now that begins when we first received Jesus Christ for salvation. You know, Jesus died for you. He, he rose again. You believe in Jesus rightly. And, you know, throughout Scripture, we're constantly told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe that Jesus is Lord and, and be saved. You, you have to receive him as this. As Adrian Rogers said, we cannot have what he gives until we first accept what he is. In order to receive what he gives, we have to first believe and hold that he is who he says he is. He is Lord, meaning master, meaning he's our ultimate sovereign. You cannot have him as Savior without him being Lord. But then setting Jesus apart as Lord also means that all of our loyalty goes to Christ. Christ, the loyalty we have for Christ trumps all of our other loyalties. So yeah, we're, we're to be loyal to family, but our loyalty to Christ is even stronger than that. We're to be loyal to the church. Our loyalty to Christ is stronger than that. Our loyalty to Christ always comes first, before everything. Everything. You mean my loyalty to Christ comes before my job? Yep. You mean my loyalty to Christ comes before my entertainment? Yep. You mean my loyalty to Christ comes before sports? Yep. And trust me, that's dangerous to say in SEC country. Our loyalty to Christ trumps everything. And with this loyalty comes reverence and awe. All the reverence and awe that is due him. And so listen, listen to this. If we hold Christ as Lord and we revere him as we ought, we, we fear him. I mean, it's called, you know, fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of everything. If we fear and revere him as we ought, guess what? We're not going to fear mankind because we fear God more than we fear mankind. We wouldn't be concerned, as concerned, at least, about what man is doing if we first consider our loyalty to Christ and our fear and reverence and awe of Christ. That's why Jesus told us in Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Concern yourself more with the matters of the Lord than the matters of the world. And when you are so focused in and so in awe of God, the things of this world will, go, will grow strangely dim, as the song says. But it's not just a matter of, of fear, it's also a matter of trust and, and love because his lordship is not some sort of tyranny. It's one of love and goodness and, and, and mercy. And when Jesus Christ is set apart 
as Lord, we recognize that he is our refuge and he is our protection. And so if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is my Lord, if Jesus is your Lord, then we can join the psalmist in saying what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I am not afraid. What can people do to me? Did you hear that? The Lord is on my side. I am not afraid. What can people do to me? Ultimately, nothing. And so setting apart Jesus as Lord means I recognize he sovereignly controls every detail of the world and personally every detail of my life. Nothing is going to happen to me that he is not in control of. Nothing is going to happen to me that he either does not allow or will or whatever. Because if I belong to him, yeah, this earth gets kind of ugly. Things get kind of ugly. But I will not be ultimately destroyed. And if I die, well, in actuality, I live. I mean, Jesus did say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever dies believing in me, shall live. We live. And so I need this perspective and live out from that perspective, and I only receive that perspective when I concede to Jesus Christ being my Lord. Only when he is Lord can I have the strength to not live in fear. Because I know who Christ is and I know his rightful place. And I have the perspective that, you know what, whatever this world throws at me, it don't matter. Because guess what? Jesus is still Lord. You know, the majority of the world either does not know Christ or is openly hostile toward Christ. And it don't matter because Jesus is still Lord. We don't have to wait on the world to take a vote. All right, who thinks Jesus is Lord? Raise your hand. Those who don't, oh, Jesus lost out. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is Lord no matter what the world says. And nothing will change. And so, if Jesus is Lord, what do I have to be afraid of? He's in charge of everything. He's got it all. Alexander McLaren wrote this. Only he who can say, the Lord is the strength of my life, then can then go on to say, of whom shall I be afraid? Only when you got Jesus in the right place in your life, and you got that perspective, can you say, of whom am I going to be afraid? You see, fear will flee when we yield ourselves to Christ as Lord. If we would yield our lives. It made me think of the Lion King movie, and you know, there was that part where Simba is, is trapped by the hyenas, and, and Simba tries to, tries to roar at the hyenas, and they start laughing because, you know, it didn't come out any more than a little meow. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's this huge booming roar, and the hyenas scattered. Why? Because the king had come. You know, we can try and take care of these things in our own power, in our own way. Oh, it's nothing but a small meow. We have no power on our own. But we have a Lord. We have a King who has our back. And if our Lord 
and king has our back, who are we going to fear? What are we going to fear? But the question is, do we live like he's king? Do we live like he is Lord? Until you set him apart as Lord, you, fear will continue to haunt you. Fear will continue to haunt me. But if Jesus is Lord, eh, what, do, what can man do to me? What can man do to me? And, and so we have to concede that Christ is our Lord. But secondly today, something that will help with fear is to consider the truthfulness of your faith. Consider the truthfulness of our faith. Look at, the, look at the last part of verse 15. It tells us always be ready to give an answer. Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks about the hope that we possess. So yeah, this is the Christian apologist go-to verse. My kind of verse. Our faith is reasonable. Our faith can be proven. Our faith is true. And, and so what, what Peter is saying is as you navigate the hostility of this world toward you, toward your Christ, toward your faith, if you suffer for your faith, and, and, and then you, you, you do it, though, in the, with grace and relying upon God, and, and the world sees you suffering, but yet you're doing it with grace and dignity and hope and strength, they won't be able to figure it out. How, how, can, you, how can you suffer like you're suffering with hope and dignity and strength? How can you maintain that hope? Why do you hold on to your hope? The world would, will want us to, or, you know, will want to scream out kind of like Job's wife, just curse God and die. Why are you holding on to your hope? And Peter says, be ready to tell them why. I'll tell you why. Because I have a Savior. Be prepared to tell them about the source of your hope and your faith and why it is the truth. Be prepared to tell them why it is the truth. That means you need to know what you believe and why you believe what you believe. Because this is important because if you truly consider the faith and you study the faith, the more convinced you're going to become of its truthfulness. Because guess what? When your eyes are open, you will see all evidence points to the truthfulness of God, of Christ, and of Scripture. All evidence. And what helps us to, to dispel the fear that we might have in a hostile environment is knowing, guess what? I have the truth. This truth can be demonstrated. No one can change the truth. This truth, truth will never change. Christ is on the throne forever. Ain't nothing going to change. No one's going to change that. And, I, and I, can, I can demonstrate the truthfulness of all of this. And so, you know, we claim we have exclusive truth, and then people are like, well, that's pretty intolerant of you to claim that you have exclusive truth. And to say that all these other philosophies and religions are wrong. Well, no, it's not intolerant to say you have the truth when you have the truth. I mean, that'd be like saying, well, you know, it's pretty intolerant of you to say that two plus two equals four. How dare you? say that. I want to say 2 plus 2 equals 5. Good luck with that. You know, there, there actually are people that argue for that. They're a little off. You can't argue with the truth. Truth 
is true. If you take all the data from the world, you take all the data from philosophy, from history, from science and scripture, and you take all the worldviews that are out there and match them with all of the data and information and evidence that there is out there in the world, there is only one worldview that can account for it all. And it's biblical Christianity. Nothing else. Only biblical Christianity can make sense of origin, of meaning, of morals, of destiny. Only biblical Christianity can give the answer. Because only biblical Christianity has the answer. And if we have the truth, and we believe the truth, what do we have to fear? I have, I have the truth. What do I have to be afraid of you for? Right? You know, with these enemies, why do I have to be afraid of you? You're, you're stuck in a lie. I have the truth. And so Peter tells us that since we have the truth, we're able to tell them the truth of what gives us hope. Let me tell you what, why I have hope. It's all about Christ, and you know. And able to give the evidence, able to give the arguments, able to give everything. Tell them why. And, and, but, but Peter says, watch your attitude. Don't, don't get arrogant. Don't get mean-spirited in the way that you deal with people. Don't look down on people. Because guess what? They're blind. They are blind. The enemy, you know, the earthly enemies are blind. They, the Bible tells us that, that, the, that Satan, the demonic powers, have blinded these people to the truth. And so what does Peter tell us? Don't, don't argue just to argue. Give your answer. Give your defense with courtesy and respect, it says in verse 16. And live your life in light of the truth by keeping a good conscience, by good conduct, as your good conduct backs up your arguments and, and, and your reasons. And, and so he says that, you know, you should live so good and so holy in Christ that it actually causes shame to the enemies when they slander you. And if it doesn't cause them shame now, it will on the day of judgment. And even if we still suffer, then let us suffer for doing good and speaking truth in love, not for doing evil. And let's not be known for being jerks, right? My catchphrase? I mean, that, that's what he's telling us in verses 15 through 17. Live your life in such a way that it backs up your defense, your apologetic, your argument, your, your reasoning for why you have hope. Let your life back that up. Possessing truth dispels fear. If I have the truth and I know that it's true and I'm able to live according to that truth, why should I fear? What do I have to fear? I have truth on my side. In a very rough illustration, I mean, if you're going to take a math test that covers one subject, but you know that it is true, you know the ins and outs of it, I mean, why should you fear? I mean, as far as we can tell, the Pythagorean theorem is true. We know it's true. We can apply it. So why should I fear taking a test about it? Because I know I have the truth. Well, we have the truth in Christ. I mean, the real truth. This one is set in, in stone to you, you know, so to speak. It is set in eternity, really. If you know God through Jesus Christ, you have the truth. 
you're on the side of truth. Truth is on your side, so to speak. So if you hold on to a biblical worldview, you know the truth, you're on the side of truth, the truth will set you free to live without fear because you belong to the one who is the truth as well as the way and the life. So when fear of coming hostility starts to creep into your heart, tell that fear, but I know the truth because I know Christ and I know Christ died for me and I know he rose again and I know he seated at the right hand of the Father and I know he promised that all who believe in him would have eternal life, which means I'm going to be with him one day and there's nothing that this world or anybody else can do to me that will change that. That's the truth. So why should I fear? Live then according to that truth. Now there's a third lesson that Peter gives us here. Commit your destiny to the gospel message. Commit your destiny to the gospel message. Verse 18 gives a very succinct summary of the gospel message. Peter introduces it, it reminding us that, well, you know, he, you're going to suffer. Guess what? Jesus suffered. Jesus, he received a lot of hostility. I mean, he faced real hostile situations, right? But then God used that hostility to bring about the greatest blessing this world has ever known, salvation from sin. Jesus suffered and died, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. The one who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says he died in the flesh, but he was raised back to life in the Holy Spirit so that we would be brought to God, is what he says there in verse 18. So we would be brought, you know, the door is open. We can be brought to God. And so for those who believe in Jesus Christ, your destiny is altered because now you're a child of God. You're going to be in his presence for all of eternity. Those in Christ are not condemned. Right? Paul says that in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Zip. Zero. No condemnation. Did you sin? Yes. Are you condemned? No. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ, what he did. Those who are in Christ are not condemned to judgment, they are the eternal recipients of peace and hope and joy. But the Bible says that those who have not believed are condemned already because they fall under the sin of God, they, they fall under the judgment of God because of their sin. So, what does this have to do with suffering in a hostile world? Well, it has everything because our eternal security is, is secured in Christ. I mean, our eternal destiny is secured in Christ. We have assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's nothing that this world can do to us. There's nothing that anyone in the world can do to us. There's nothing that Satan and his demons can do to us to change our eternal destiny. Right? And, you know, later on in Romans 8, Paul, sa uh, Paul says, right, you know, I mean, what's going to separate you from the love, love of God in Christ Jesus? I mean, height, depth, I mean, there's nothing. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ if you are in Christ. Humanity's greatest fear is taken care of. Or what ought to be humanity's greatest fear. Humanity ought, the greatest fear humanity ought to have is God's judgment. That's the biggest fear there is in, the, in all of existence. Right? Jesus said it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God and, and, to, and to suffer under his wrath. That ought to be the world's greatest fear. And it ought to cause them to seek out his mercies and his grace that he gives abundantly in Christ. But it doesn't. But that ought to be the world's greatest fear. Guess what? If you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about that. Because God's justice and wrath has been taken care of. We don't have to fear because the debt has been paid. Nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. And so compared to God's wrath, I mean, what is there to fear? The gospel took care of our biggest problem. So if the gospel took care of my biggest problem, as the psalmist said in Psalm 118, the Lord's on my side. What do I have to fear? I have the Lord on my side now. What can mortal man do to me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And, and so the, the world, so the enemies of the cross, our enemies will come to us. Well, we're going to do this to you. We're going to do that to you. We're going to do this. Yeah, but it's not going to change who I am in Christ. We're going to make you suffer. Okay, but Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that's going to be revealed in us. Okay. And then they'll come back and say, well, maybe we'll kill you then. Okay, I'm, I'm with Paul when he said in Philippians 1.21, hey, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, then we're going to do, look, what are you going to do to me? There is nothing you can do to me because Christ covered it all. I have eternal life. So you do something to me here on this earth. You know what? In a hundred years, I'm not going to care because I'm going to be with my Lord. There's nothing that you or anybody else can do to me that will change my eternal destiny once I am in Christ. There's a lot, a lot of things that change in this world. I got programs telling, constantly telling me to change my password. You go to a restaurant and they're constantly changing their menu. It might be a lot of change, you know, the, they say the only constant is change, right? There's one thing that will never change. You cannot change my eternal destiny in Christ. And so if you can't change my eternal destiny in Christ, why should I be afraid of you or anybody else? I shouldn't. We don't need to fear those who can't change our eternal destiny. And to kind of bolster this, Come to the fourth lesson very quickly. So we get to celebrate Christ's victory over all enemies. We get to celebrate Christ's victory over all enemies. Now, verses 19 through 22, it's one of the most debated passages by scholars trying to sort out what it means. I mean, it talks about prisoners. It talks about Noah. It talks about baptism. It talks about angels. I mean, it's all over the board. Now, you know, there's, there's a view that says, well, it's saying that Christ went down to hell after his death and gave the souls in hell a second chance to believe and yada, yada, yada. No, that is not what it means. Now, there are two views that are most common. 
One view says that what it's saying is that the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead preached repentance through Noah to those souls who were imprisoned in sin in the days leading up to the flood. They didn't believe, but that Spirit of God was preaching through Noah. Those who were saved, the remnant that was saved. Another view says that it, what it's saying is that after his death and before his resurrection, maybe, that Christ preached his victory to demons that were imprisoned in chains, in chains um, because of shenanigans in Genesis 6 or whatever, if you hold that view. But, you know, it is, it is kind of confusing there. Either one of those views... Whichever one you prefer, it all leads to the same place because it all leads to verse 22. Verse 22 tops it off. Christ died. He rose again. He went to heaven. He ascended into heaven. And he is seated in the seat of kingly authority. And what does it say there? All angels and powers and authorities, they're all subject to him. He, right when Jesus met with his disciples, after his resurrection, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Do you know what the word all there means? It means all. Everything, whether visible or invisible, whether on earth or in heaven, everything and everyone is now subject to his authority. Including angels and demons and power, all that. Rulers, principalities, however, you know, it's broken up there. It's talking about the invisible, we normally use the term demonic, but I mean, I think it's a little bit wider than that, but, you know, all them, all them spiritual beings that are against us, they are now all under Christ's thumb, so to speak. And so we kind of return to where we began, the sovereignty of Christ. The sovereign Lord sits in power on his throne, and he has claimed victory over all of his enemies, whether they're human or demonic. Uh, you know, Paul elsewhere talks about how Christ's death and resurrection, in essence, made a spectacle of all these demonic powers. Made a spectacle of them. Made them a laughingstock. What they used to do when, when, there was a, when a king had a victory, they would take the enemy and parade them in front of the kingdom saying, yeah, they're defeated. In essence, that's what Christ did. He took all the demonic powers and just kind of marched them across saying, yeah, here's all the defeated foes. All of them are defeated. All of Christ's enemies have been placed under his feet. All of them, human or otherwise. And so when someone is hostile toward us, because of our faith, because of our trust in Christ, we can look at them and just think, yeah, you're a defeated foe. You haven't realized it yet, but you're a defeated foe. There's nothing you can do to me. You've been defeated. And so if all of these enemies, all these powers have been defeated, why should we fear them? Why fear a defeated foe? What are they, they going to do? Nothing. They can't do anything. They might be able to do some earthly stuff to us if God so allows it. We think of Job and, you know, things that, like that. But 
Ultimately, I'm going to be with Christ. You can't do anything for me. You know, I, I, I was reading this article about these Japanese soldiers who were attacked and killed by saltwater crocodiles on, in Burma uh, during World War II. And it just made me think, boy, man, you, you get attacked by a 20-foot crocodile. Yeah, that, that'd be a scary thing. But, but if there is this 20-foot crocodile and all of its teeth are pulled out, its snot has been muzzled, all its arms have been secured together, and it has this large chain wrapped around the length of its body that's holding it down to the ground, are you going to fear that animal? It's been defeated. It's been neutralized. All of our enemies have been defeated and neutralized. They cannot ultimately hurt us. They are defeated foes. And so instead of walking in fear because of the hostility that they show toward us, we can walk in victory because Christ has secured us that victory. He has defeated everyone. All the enemies. Every single one. Why should we fear? We don't need to live in fear. This world is, unless there is a revival and a great awakening amongst the lost, which we need to pray for, by the way, unless that happens, hostility toward our faith is going to increase. I mean, it's already happening here in a sense, but it's already happening all around the world. Now, I'll close with this. You know, the hostility that's shown toward people pushing back against sin and living for Christ. I read a story about a man named Roger Hoogland. He, he, he's a father in Canada. He has a teenage daughter. And although she's biologically female, she identified as a, a trans male, or however that works. Well, I, I don't know, is a trans male a female and a female trans female a male? Or, I don't know how that works. I don't know. Look, how did God make you? Okay, that's you. But anyway, she wanted to be identified as a male, however that works. But the dad, being a Christian, insisted on, you know, calling her his daughter. They came and arrested him for misgendering his child, his own child, just by calling her daughter. That's the world we live in right now. I read a story of, in England, a lady named Isabel Spruce. She was praying silently near an abortion clinic. Police confronted her and asked her if she was praying. She responded, I might be praying in my head, after which she was promptly arrested for silently praying, saying that it violated the public space protection order. Arrested for praying in your head. That's the world we live in now. And if you don't think it'll happen here, you need to wake up. But when it does, you need not fear. Because we have a Lord who loves us. We have truth on our side. We have the gospel that saves. We have the victory because Christ has the victory. So let's 
steel ourselves now in our faith in, in God through Christ. Let's be prepared. Let's be ready to fight the good fight and know now that when hostility comes, I need not fear. I stand with Christ. I stand for Christ. And I know Christ is on my side. What more do I need? Nothing. Christian, come to the altar and pray for strength. Pray for our nation. Pray that the church stands strong. Pray for the repentance of those who are hostile toward us. Because God desires repentance. And if you are not a Christian, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, God's hostility towards sin is still on you. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry at Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministry is on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.